Then I looked, oh, Revelation chapter 14, sorry. Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a rushing waters and the loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and fall, sorry, the, the earth, the sea, the springs of water, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast or its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of God on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take the sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the, th- on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of he- the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who, was in- who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines because its grapes are ripe. The earth, sorry, the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into a great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Okay. This is the word of the Lord. It's a word about judgment. Can't deny that, can we? Um, a very strong message. It has very strong images. 
And uh, these images bring a fear, and in a way, that's what they're supposed to do. That's why they're there. Yep, if we were to say, that's okay, don't need to fear, uh, then we would be not bearing truth uh, to what is written. Judgment is a topic that in one sense we don't love at all, do we? And in another sense, though, secretly, we want justice. We don't want justice, we don't want judgment for ourselves, but there's no doubt that we want the guilty, we want the evil, we want the violent people judged for their crimes, don't we? True? Yes, we do. Our hearts cry out for justice at times and for judgment. But when judgment includes us, when we kind of know that we are guilty, we're a little bit more unsure of it. How does it work out? And hopefully today we'll uh, be able to talk that through and understand it. I wanna, I'm actually going to do five points today. I'd like to do eight points, but I'm just going to stick with five. Um, and the first, I'm going to tell you what they are, so there's no secrets. Uh, the first one is there are many who will be saved. They, will have, they have already escaped judgment. Point two, the good news about Jesus will be proclaimed to everyone. Point three, God will judge the people of this world. Point four is judgment will be total, terrible and fair. And fifthly, the saints are eternally secure. So point one, there uh, will be many who are saved. These have escaped judgment already. The passage begins by talking about 144,000 believers. We don't know if that number is literal or not literal. You know that in the Revelation everything is figurative, or nearly everything, isn't it? Yeah? You get that? Because the lamb is talking about Jesus. We know that. Just in case you're picturing there's a sheep that's going to one day come and save mankind. It's not. It's Jesus. It's the lamb. But why do we picture him as a lamb who's been slain? Because it was the lamb who died for the sins of the world uh, and, and he looks like he's been slain because the marks of the crucifixion are always on him as, as a reminder to us of the forgiveness he's brought. So, again, it, there, there's a figurativeness. But what we are clear about is this 144,000 are described as first fruits in this passage. In verse 4 and 5, it says, They follow the Lamb wherever he goes, these believers. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So the first fruits, whether that's talking about the first believers or whether it's talking about these are a great, you know, when you go to the show and you put on display your tomatoes, you get a lot of tomatoes in your bucket, but which ones do you pick? Well, the best ones, the biggest, the fattest, the juiciest, the ones that are going to win the first prize. Whether it's meaning these are the best examples of God's people or something like that. Um, and these Believers throughout this passage, they follow Jesus. They travel with him. They're with him all the time. Wherever he goes, they're his followers. And they worship him. They worship him with a new song, a song of judgment. We don't have many songs of judgment that we sing, do we? We do used to sing one, and I'm going to quote it for you a bit later. Even in the, the Hillsong version of the Apostles' Creed, they got the whole Apostles' Creed, but they leave, it, leave out the bit where he judges living and dead. Maybe nothing wrong with judge, except fudge or something. But 
Or maybe there's something about judgment that kind of... Yeah, we just gloss over that. God wouldn't be judging, would he? But they have this new song in their hearts and it's a song praising God for his judgments. Because at the end of the day, the good thing is, in heaven, we will all praise God for his judgments. Yep. We will say, I am glad that you have done things the way that you've done it. No one will argue with him over, should that... Well, I really thought that one person would be in and I thought that one... Yeah, I don't know about that. You know, no one's going to go that. We are going to go, we know your judgments are true and right. Anyway, these believers, I jumped somewhere else there, they have a new song. There is this constant awe and wonder they have about God. You know, like a new song. And yet the songs that we sing about God are new every morning in a sense. We marvel at his word. We marvel at his love. There's this... Uh, this new excitement about the things of God again and again in, these, in their hearts. And they are those who have kept themselves pure from the evil of the world. They've never lied. Any of you, uh, any of you going to be in 144,000? Uh, never lied? Uh, just put your hand up. Yeah, no, it's okay. No, I won't be either. No, okay, nothing impure has ever come from the mouth. I'll talk about this in a minute. And they've been sexually pure. It says they've remained virgins. Now, that might seem like a problem for married people, even if we're not talking about sexual immorality. But the Bible's clear that marriage is good and a gift from God, right? Uh, In the Old Testament, in many places, actually, God's people are described as a virgin in their purity. Uh, one example of this uh, is Jeremiah 18.13. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, Inquire among the nations who has ever heard anything like this. A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Now, the funny thing is there, it's, uh, he's calling Israel a virgin as if they're pure, but he's also saying, but they've done horrible things. How does that, how does that work? Well... Speaking of God's people as a virgin, he's describing absolute purity, complete whiteness, undefiled by the evil world, as white as snow. And this fits the definition of the 144,000, but it doesn't fit the definition of any person on earth except Jesus himself. Is that true? Everybody else is impure. So, unless you're talking about maybe, maybe there's 144,000 pure nuns in the world or something like that. Sounds like I'm about to tell a joke, but I'm not. Um, well, actually, the passage says this about those same. It says, they are those who have been redeemed from the earth. Redeemed. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind that offered his first fruits to God. They've been redeemed and purchased. They have been bought or purchased or redeemed by God. Now, if you buy or redeem or purchase something, you have to make a payment, true? You go down the shop, you buy your sausages, you give them money, they give you sausages, right? There is a redemption or a purity that has come to humanity and it's come at a price. What is the price? Well, it's the life of Jesus Christ, God's own precious and perfect son who gave up his life on the cross to redeem us, to purchase us, 
who were soiled, sinful humanity. What I'm saying is, how can you have 144,000 pure people? Well, the purity, the whiteness, the holiness, the virginness comes from Jesus Christ. By the way, that also means that if you are in Jesus Christ, that is the purity that you have. That's good, isn't it? Right. And if you think about the depth of that purity, then any attempt that you make or even any success that you make in trying to be pure falls so far short of God's purity, doesn't it? Thank goodness it comes as a gift through Jesus Christ. He has forgiven all our sins. He has washed us white as in snow. He's cleansed us of all our, all our iniquities. He's restored our purities, our impurities at the cost of his son. And at the end of the revelation, it speaks of God's pure people as a bride, dressed in white. That's, that's the sign, isn't it, of virginity that's there. But it says that their purity... Their righteousness has actually been washed. Their clothes have been washed by Jesus. It wasn't their own. It's happened to them. Because if we talk about impurity, our hearts go, that's me. I'm impure. We are outside of Christ. But with him, he has made us perfect. So Jesus took the judgment that was due us and that judgment has happened and we have been pronounced pure. Now, why is it jump into judgment there? It's because this passage is already is all about judgment. And if you're impure, you deserve judgment. True? Your own hearts bear witness to that fact. You deserve judgment when you're impure. But Jesus said in John 5.24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. In other words, we've already been judged. When did you get judged? When you believed in Christ. Well, you were judged in one sense as guilty before that, but when you believed in Christ, you were judged as not guilty. That judgment has happened. So my point one is, and this passage begins with a group of people who have pure and are righteous and are God's people because Jesus has redeemed them. So my point is, there are many who will be saved. And this passage starts with that. Just so you know, before we get to the big judgment bits, have in your head, there are those who will be saved. Who? Those who are in Christ. Keep that in mind because the judgment's heavy. Okay. Because point three, which I'm skipping over point two, but point three is God will judge the world. So before you know... Before you get point three, understand this. Many will be saved and are safe from the judgment. Point two is this. The gospel will be proclaimed to all. All will, all will hear the gospel. Verse six said, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. The good news about Jesus, the message I've already said to you, will be proclaimed to every tribe, nation and people. So when you're thinking, what about those who didn't hear it? 
Well, you naturally be thinking oh, that's the ones that I can't remember any Christians going to preach to them. So how did they get to hear it? Who preached to them, by the way? Who preaches this eternal gospel? Well, it's only the angel. In other words, God ensures that all will hear. How will that come to them? Not our business. Okay. But what you need to know this is this. All who will be judged will have heard the gospel. And the ones who are judged as guilty are those who reject the gospel they've heard. Do you get that? It will be proclaimed to all. And those who will not believe, those who are guilty, it will be because they refuse to believe the gospel. And then the angel makes these commands. Fear God and give him the glory. In light of what God's done through us through Christ, fear God and give him the glory. That's the right response to the good news, isn't it? Yep. Fear God. The, just think about it. The only reason that I am fit for God, right, is because of what he's done. Everything about me makes me unfit for God. So when I'm saved, I'm saved purely by his grace and mercy because I am a sinner. Therefore, I should fear God and give him the glory. Can you see what I'm saying? Or I can say, how good am I? Yeah. And not fear God. I fear God and give him the glory because he is the saviour and he is the judge. Point three, God will judge the people of this world. Now, judge, remember, remember the word judgment actually is not talking about the punishment, although we, we include that in it at times. The word judgment means the division, doesn't it? The court... At the end of the day, the judge doesn't end up with seven different options. The judge comes down with his hammer and he says, guilty or not guilty. That's the only two options, correct? That's what judgment's about. Two possibilities, guilty or not guilty, forgiveness or punishment, life or death, heaven or hell, peace or torment, love or wrath. Now the last two are a bit shaky because they're not really opposite. But that's, that's, that's the end. And God is right to judge this world because he's holy. God is good to judge this world. And he cannot and will not ever accept anything that is unholy. He will not allow anything that is not pure and holy, remain in this universe, right? So there is going to come a day where there will be nothing impure left. If God is holy and he is powerful, he has said, I've brought a day and there will be nothing left that's impure ever again. Why? Because he's holy and because he's all-powerful and because he's righteous. He's right to do this. He alone is God. Now, I said at the start, we struggle with the thought of judgment. Now, one of the reasons that I think we struggle with this is because we see the way judgments are made on earth and then we throw that up at God. We, you know, I said the judge brings down his gavel. They reckon in court cases, about somewhere around 87% accurate. 
That means 13% of people in jail for murder didn't do it. Pretty high percentage. By the way, it's one of the most accurate ways, this jury judge thing, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? I'm not there to defend that. But you see, and also we go, yeah, but have a look at that judge. We know what he's like. Imagine if I, Derek, was the judge of all the earth. <laughs> well, I can see a few of you are my favourites. You'd be in. Some of you, ooh, if you could, you know, a bit more money or glorify me a bit more. States, yeah. I would not judge this world in purity. In, in, in fact, I would become corrupt, especially with the power of that. I would base my judgments on bias, favouritism, and so on. But the Bible says of God, he judges in absolute purity. In Romans 2, which is a passage all about judgment, you can go home and read that for your homework, Romans 2. But in verse 11 it says, For God does not show favouritism. He judges purely. People say, and I don't know why they find comfort in this, but the Bible definitely says it. You know, man looks at the outside, God sees the heart. That doesn't bring me any peace. Because <laughs> I tell you what, I can, I can hide the outside, the good bits that you see, but I can't change the heart. Now, I don't get any, I don't get any peace from that. All right? God sees the heart. He knows I'm basically good is what people say. I know I'm not. He judges, though, not on the basis of good and bad, but on the basis of faith in the blood of Jesus. Has this man or woman been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ? Because, as Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. God judges impartially based on those who have faith in Christ. Okay, so we got to this. Four points so far. There are many who will be saved and they have already passed through judgment. Point two, the gospel will be proclaimed to all. Point three, God will judge the people of this world. He will judge. And point four is this. Judgment will be total. It will be terrible. It will be fair. When I say terrible, I mean there's terror in it. This, is, this passage in chapter 15 are the ones we get the picture of the grim reaper from. The one with the scythe, the sickle. He's, he's harvesting the earth. Uh, it's not as the uh, comic books portray it or the movies, but um, of an angel of the Lord harvesting the people of this earth. And then of a great winepress where the guilty are judged in the wrath of God. And it speaks of blood basically being waist deep for 300 kilometres, just so you want, if you don't understand the picture. I, I, again, it's a, um, it's a figurative speech, but what is it figurative speech of? A great and terrible judgment. The great and terrible day of the Lord. We can't play that down. Don't start thinking, oh, God might just say, oh, it's all right, I'll let you all in. It'll be okay. Don't worry. There is a great and terrible day of the judgment of God. We're going to sing in a minute a, a, a song that we used to, a hymn that we used to sing, and, and I'm just, it, it comes from this passage, and I, I do want to read it just because it says, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes are off the store. 
He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And then it says, glory, glory, hallelujah. Not, oh, hide everybody. This is terrible. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Praise God for his judgments. He has sounded forth the trumpet that will never call retreat. He's sifting out the hearts of all before his judgment seat. I will be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Now, this then it goes on to speak of the hope we have in Christ who was born across the sea and he has his glory that transfigures, that changes us. He, he died to make us holy. Right. There is a great judgment coming. Don't ever play this down. The only hope we have is in Christ. And he is the one who makes believers holy. But... Do not get in the habit of playing down the judgment of God. Because you know what will happen if you play down the wrath of God? You won't fear the Lord. Then you'll have a warped view of who he is. It will be a terrible judgment. Jesus describes wrath, weeping, gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment and a place of fire and torment. That's Jesus. Those people who see this creator God, who see this beautiful creation, who see the wonders of his work, who hear of his grace and mercy, who see his and hear of his love through Jesus and then say, I reject that, I'd rather be my own God, there will be a great judgment upon those people. God's righteous judgments. True and fair. Impartial and based on the God who knows everything who is holy in all his ways, who is righteous and just. So point five is this. The saints are eternally secure. It's in this same passage. It seems like we come back to where we started and we have in a way. God's redeemed follow the lamb wherever he goes. In verse 13 it said, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Paraphrase that. You are going to be blessed when you die believing in Jesus. It is a blessing to die in the Lord. That's good, isn't it? Just in case you're worried about judgment, you are blessed if you die in him. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour. Now, did you notice in that passage, there's no rest for the wicked. That's what people say, isn't it? But when it says of those who are under God's judgment, they will never rest. They will never have peace in their hearts again. There will be rest for the people of God. They will rest from their labour. Their deeds will follow them. They are kept safe and they do good works. This is his people. And they will glorify God and they will fear God and they'll follow Jesus and they'll love God and they'll love their neighbours. And these deeds will follow them into heaven just as they follow the Lamb. So one day, we will die. Maybe soon, maybe many years away. It doesn't matter. As long as you die in the Lord, then you will die safe, safe from judgment, safe from the evil world, safe from the devil, safe from his demons, safe even from your own sinful nature. Completely safe. 
How? Through Jesus Christ and only through him. Safe and secure, resting in peace and joy forever. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this. There's what uh, Paul says. This is probably his last book. It's probably the last chapter of his last book. This is the last bit he's writing in 2 Timothy 4.8. Sorry. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's pretty sure of himself, isn't he? No, he's pretty sure in Christ. He knows what he'll have in Christ. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing or for his return. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. I pray that the fear of the Lord will lead us all to repentance, faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are bold after hearing this to pray and thank you for your judgments. We're not bold in ourselves because we know that apart from you, we deserve those judgments. We deserve that wrath. So we're bold, praising you for your judgments because we know of the grace and mercy that's come to us through Jesus, your son. The grace and mercy we have never deserved. We confess that of ourselves, we have sinned against you. We constantly do it. Our only hope is in you, we confess that's true, and in your son Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us to live fearing you and glorifying you in everything. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.